Hello and welcome to Don't Look Down, the podcast that is tackling subjects about mental health and your well-being. The next person that we are going to be hearing from is a lady called Liz Dips. Elizabeth Dipple is her full name, but I call her Liz Dips. And she is a very experienced midwife. And she is going to be sharing with us the special moments of bringing new life into the world, which is so, so precious. But away from these treasured, precious moments, Liz is going to be sharing her story with us about how a very unfortunate incident happened, one that sort of changed her mental well-being and almost nearly destroyed her career that she loved and cared dearly for. She's a mother herself and she is going to be talking quite extensively about postnatal depression. So even being in the industry and the career that Liz chose, she still, you know, suffered with with postnatal depression and she's going to be sort of um, talking to us five years on of how she is now teaching sort of midwifery and wanting to sort of experience the joy of bringing new life into the world while also sort of touching on the reality that sadly things aren't always that straightforward so please enjoy Alexandra Hospital um, on the neonatal ward and her name is uh, Pearl and you call her Shirley. Shirley. Yeah. <laughs> so very grateful for that um, time and I'm really grateful for you being here. So um, I like to start all of my podcasts right at the beginning and um, the same question I ask everybody is a little bit of a positive thing um, is what three things would you say that you're most grateful for in life, apart from the obvious, you know, your children and your family that, you know, really sort of stick out to you that you feel really grateful for and why? Um, so the thing that made me cope the most when I wasn't very well is cross-stitching. Mm. And that, that I, I love doing every day. I take at least... 10, 15, 20 minutes every day to cross-stitch just to take my mind off almost everyday life, the things that you cope with. I absolutely adore books. I can't even begin to tell you how how they've totally changed my life and they open up new new experiences and things that you don't see, but also to take you out of reality. Some things are reality-based, but other things to take you out of reality just to give you a bit of time to yourself and a bit of time to think so you can totally zone out. And escape. Yeah. Yeah. And cross-stitching is very therapeutic, actually. I love it. I've just been to um, a Happy Place Festival of Fern Cottons. Yeah. And there was a whole craft section where people were doing cross-stitching and some of it. 
Yeah. So, yeah. And what's the third thing? It's going to sound really bizarre, but I totally love Kirsty Allsop. So, oh, yes. So, vintage queen. Yep. So, watching her upcycle things, watching her Christmas makes, her handmade Christmas, all of those I absolutely love. And I've been totally inspired by. So, now I want to totally change, you know, the time where I didn't do anything to maybe upcycle, to maybe take up a course doing upholstery or... Oh, brilliant. Something completely different, whereas before I'd think, I can't do that. Now mm. I'm in the frame of mind of, actually, yeah, I can. And just because, as bizarre as it sounds, things are old, doesn't mean that you can't reuse them, doesn't mean that they can't have a new life, which is kind of where I've been and where I'm going to. Oh, I love that. So that that's where I've come from with that absolutely brilliant and you know you didn't even have to think about them you just knew what they were but oh Kirsty Allsop's homemade Christmas she's amazing it's so inspiring isn't it um she's she is amazing I love them um, watching Gardener's World that, really yeah I said to I said to my husband um is it really sad that I want Gardener's World for my birthday? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. You can get tickets to go, yeah. I absolutely love it. it. Just completely, again, the same as you with what with Kirsty and the cross-stitching. It's just, I find it really therapeutic. I automatically feel relaxed, calm. And it just, looking at all those colours and being around nature, it just really, really uplifts me. So now I associate with that. So... Going back to your career and starting at the beginning, how long have you been a midwife and was that always your dream job? So I've been qualified 13 years, 13 and a half, come the end of summer. Now, as I was discussing with somebody today, I wanted to do archaeology when I left school. Wow. Wasn't quite ready to leave home, have an absolute phobia of sand, and was convinced I'd have to go and work in Egypt with sand. <laughs> so didn't didn't feel that that was the way forward. No. And that's from watching Evil Under the Sun with Hercule Poirot and the archaeology with that. So yeah. after watching that, no, totally wasn't ready. Kind of drifted into a health and social type course at our local college with a view to doing social work. Because it was like I was too young at the time. Mm. Went through this course, was totally and utterly depressed by the loopholes that children, families, everybody fell through mm. with policies and social work. Went on to top up to a degree in early years. Still wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. One of my friends went to do midwifery and I thought, mm, that seems nice, I'll give that a go. Not really with much insight, never really looked at anything before somehow kind of winged it through the the interview process mm. and kind of went and then 13 years later I'm still doing it brilliant in and sometimes that's that's it you don't know which path you really want to go on and then you just kind of stumble across it and then you know that that's your field um did you find it um natural did you enjoy it straight away did you think yeah this is definitely the career path that I want to go down when I started it I wasn't really 100% sure it was what I wanted. Mm. I'd got an absolute passion for it. Loved the biological side of it. Yeah. How things happen, how things work. Um, struggled very much with the emotional side mm. and bereavement and loss. Like every student, like every midwife, like anybody yeah. that you'll ask. 
but as the as the years went on it just became more natural i always had a phobia of delivery suite which most students do there are yeah. many students that think yeah i absolutely love the thrill of that so as a but i had a lot of really good mentors and a lot of really good experiences so by the end of my course i delivered about three sets of twins which none of my other colleagues had done so once i qualified I wasn't bothered about doing it because I'd done it before, which mm. a lot of others hadn't. And I was brave enough and confident enough to go on and do things that a lot of newly qualifieds hadn't. Brilliant. So very natural then. And yeah. you are brilliant, by the way. So just going back to something you said about the emotion side of things, because bringing new life into the world, and I can't imagine the how you must feel bringing a sets of twins and babies healthily and having that those moments of just pure joy but with it does not always come you know with um the best outcome so how do you kind of separate um those emotions from work life and your personal life and avoid taking those emotions home because i for one would find that really difficult so I used to, you talk to your colleagues a lot at work. There is a really good support system we have at work and there is always someone who you can go and talk to. So you kind of have, everybody has somebody different at work, whether it's their friends, whether it's one of their bosses, whether it's someone else. We had a counsellor at work that was really good who I saw after Alex's delivery and who mm. helped cope with the incident that happened at work. Yeah. And finally healed it for me. Good. Although I wish I'd have known about that at the time because that probably really would have helped. Mm. But I also am very aware that I can't take my work life home, so some things you need to separate. Mm. My husband is very supportive and he understands, to a, to an extent, the pressures and stresses that I go home with. Mm. I used to go home and just burst into tears and he'd literally just hug me because there isn't anything he could do to make it any better. No. But it was just being there. Mm. So it's good to have a good support network around yeah, absolutely. you, and, and that in you know in your job environment as well, knowing that you know there's somebody to go to that can you know speak to you and advise you with certain incidents that happen. So that so that's good, and I suppose it's over time as well. Really, you you know at the start, I suppose you were a bit of an emotional wreck, but then over time you learn to try and cope with things a little bit better. I can't ever imagine it gets easier though. Um, but then I suppose the good moments always outweigh the, the bad um, when you get those beautiful precious moments and seeing people happy hopefully that kind of helps you learn to cope in a different way mm. because it's not about you it's about the woman you're looking after it's about that family so however upset you are inside you can't let out everything obviously it's okay to be emotional it's okay to be upset for those upsetting moments but you can't outpour your grief onto them no. so you have to to cope with it mm. and like you said about delivering twin, twins you're so focused on that moment that you almost don't appreciate that the joy of bringing the life in mm. until it's all done and everything's safe and everything's okay because you are so focused and your adrenaline's um, kicking in. Yeah. You're so focused on your job, delivering mm. that baby, mm. delivering that placenta. Is the woman okay? Is the baby okay? And then once it's over, then you appreciate how amazing it is. But at the time, you're very, very focused. Set on just that goal. Um, because I suppose 
with midwifery in the courses, do, do they, you know, I suppose they don't teach you the emotional side of things, do they? No. I don't they, know. They teach it, from what I remember, they teach it us from a, a mother's and... Perspective. Yeah. But not how you're going to feel. Hmm. And you kind of pick that up from your mentors, how, right. how you're going to feel about things. But until you've done it, you you can't know how you're going to feel at no, all. No, of course. So, um, what happened that changed how you felt about being a midwife um, and that unfortunate um, sort of incident that happened um, and how you doubted yourself, if, if you don't mind, sort of talking about that? I had an incident where, unfortunately, a baby died at work and it was kind of... I was blamed for, do, for it, mm. even though the longer outcome of it once all everything was back in and it was just something somebody said to me at the time Mm. made me totally doubt myself I think my mental health was affected although I didn't actually seek advice at the time Mm. which looking back I definitely should have yeah but it it totally made me think is this the right career am I doing the right thing the support was there my colleagues were really good at the time, we had what was called supervision. So you had a supervisor of midwives who you went to speak to. Mm. And she was fantastic. She was there whenever I needed her. And there was another midwife who was fantastic who I could go and talk to at any time. Mm. So between the two of them, plus the two mentors who were mentoring me because I ended up on supervised practice, mm. I kind of coped with it all. But without them, I don't think I would have. So the mentors and, and basically that support network within your um, within, within, work. within your workplace is, is definitely key. Yeah. And that helped grow your confidence back. It was the times when you thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to come back. But if it wasn't for them. My fr- one of my friends from work came to pick me up nearly every shift to take me into work. Mm. I can't also discount the support of my friends, my really close friends who would literally phone me and check on me every day and obviously my hubby was brilliant. But it is the support at work because they know how you feel. Yes. Mm. And almost they don't they don't want it to be them. Of course, I don't think anybody would ever want it to be them, would they? So no. the sympathy and the support you know, is good, and I'm glad that you, you know, you did stay on that career path because, you know, I've experienced you as a midwife firsthand, looking after my own daughter, and you were brilliant. So I'm really glad that you decided to stay and that you did have the support because I think it's really important within a workplace and mental health, um, and all those aspects of things. It's so important to make sure that you have got that support. Um, so working for the NHS. Um, it's got so many pressures, um, so up against it, especially in your particular role. What do you find are the biggest pressures that you face daily? From working in the NHS, it's things that are reported everywhere. It's short staffing. It's the sheer volume of work that we have. It's not being able to give the care and the support that we want. That, we, that anybody would want to give to the people they're looking after. That's mm. some of the hardest. Yeah, those are the things, and I think everyone that works in the NHS is is struggling with the same things, aren't they? There's not enough bed space, there's not enough manpower. Um, do you feel that over the years, with different sort of 
political parties do you feel like it's changed from when it was Labour to Conservative or do you feel like it's just exactly the same? I don't feel like it's changed overly much. I just feel like the birth rate has increased and you can feel really? the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Right, okay. So, aside from the very, you know, unlucky incident that you experienced, um, how do you manage day-to-day work and, and what sort of support is in place? So, from the incident that happened, what totally changed the way I looked at work was one of my work colleagues was going for an elective section with her second child mm. and was adamant she wouldn't go in without me. And this was just about eight months after this incident happened at work. Right. When I was lacking confidence in myself, my colleague had total faith in me that I was the best person to be there when when she had her child. So yes. that, for me, totally changed everything. Brilliant. Good. Um, obviously, then you knew that you weren't going to doubt your career choice anymore. That was it. Yeah. That must have been amazing and so supportive from her point of view as well, um, having you there and having such faith in you and I think that's important to have faith. Yeah. You know, any any unfortunate situations can happen to anyone, not just in your um, career, but in anybody's, you know, and to have been made to feel like it was your fault, you know, is, is awful and what you had to experience. but. You know, you have, you bounced back, your friend had faith in you and, and you stayed on the um, on the path that you have. Um, we'll talk about where your career path has actually taken you 13 years on a little bit later on, but I just wanted to talk about the fact that you're, when you became a mother to your son Alex, um, named after the Alexandra Hospital in Redditch, um, so can you sort of share with us your story about your pregnancy and how Alex was actually born? So our pregnancy was quite stressful. We'd been waiting six years for Alex in total. Um, came off the pill like any normal person, thought mm-hmm. you'd get pregnant naturally. It wasn't too fussed for the first couple of years because you just assumed that, oh, well, it's just one of those things. And it yeah, was, these things can take time. Yeah, and it wasn't till about three years... Three years later, we got pregnant when we decided we were going to sort, you know, do it properly. Ended up in a miscarriage six weeks later. Didn't think anything of it. Thought, oh, well, got pregnant once. It's obviously going to happen again. Two years later, still nothing. Mm -hmm. And literally three people in a week text me or phone me to say they were pregnant. And I was absolutely distraught because you just think I've been you know, waiting so long to get pregnant. I've obviously got pregnant before, it's still not happening. Why is it not happening now? Yeah. So I ended up at the GP, had the test done, got told, you know, there were problems with both of us. Um, then I had to have more blood tests taken. Um, as it turns out, mine weren't too bad, so I was okay, but it was a sperm problem. So Ian was absolutely destroyed, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm went through the guilt of, you can leave me, you know, go and find somebody else. And that was really difficult. But they're time. hard moments to go through, aren't they? And you do think, why me? Yeah. And especially when you're hearing of everyone else's joyful news that they're pregnant and you've fallen pregnant before. There's so many seeds of doubt in your mind. 
but it's the other things as well not just the you know everybody else is pregnant you think why me why is it me why isn't it happening but it's the questions as well oh, are you going to have children yeah you're thinking about having children it's the pressures when you get married everybody asks the same so when are you going to have a baby then and yeah and it's, it's all it's that. hard it is very it is very difficult I do, yeah i do understand that so what happened then we ended up we had a lot of tests done well i did blood tests that I absolutely hate I might throw in there <laughs> um, went for a scan nothing wrong went to see the fertility team at the women's because that's where we got referred to who said yes absolutely you'll need to have IVF and it'll need to be ICSI we'll apply I think we went on the Tuesday and by the Saturday we got the letter from Worcestershire saying we've got funding mm. which was brilliant Ironically, I'd booked us a holiday to go to Florida, which I'd booked as a surprise for Ian mm. in February. Mm. So we went to Florida for two weeks, came back and literally started straight away. And it's one of the most invasive procedures I've ever known of. I'd have to, in started off injecting myself once a week, then it went up to twice a week, then I was having transvaginal scans twice a week. Then to that see went how three, the eggs were Yeah, then it went up three times a week. Yeah. Then it was having a, a huge injection to then go and have eggs removed, which is one of the worst experiences that I've ever had. It was worse than having a section. It's worse than having my wisdom teeth out. It's one of the worst experiences I've ever had. So that was awful. Despite the fact they said I could possibly stay overnight, which I was adamant that wasn't, even mm. though I couldn't actually walk in a straight line after the general anaesthetic, I was going home. And then it's the timing, so then you've had your eggs removed. Then they phone you every morning to see if you need to go in to have your eggs put back. Then when I went to have them put back, they struggled to get them in. So they're supposed to do it with scanning and putting them back. Mm. And then kind of put them back and said, oh, well, we'll see you next time, because they just assumed it didn't work, which obviously then made us feel ten times better. So that was quite stressful. And this was just before Christmas. This was the mm. 21st of December. So it was a lovely time of year. And yet me and Ian drove there in silence and pretty much drove back in silence. Yeah. Because you don't know what to say to each other. Of course not. I understand that. Um, did the pregnancy test on the 1st of January, like we were told to. Given a really cheap test. And I wish we'd have bought... A digital one because I was convinced I wasn't pregnant when actually it was a positive. So, so if I just stopped, it had yeah. worked. But if I'd stopped being such an idiot and just bought a digital one like it wanted me to, then we'd have found out a couple of weeks sooner because we ended up doing it two weeks later. Went for the scan, looked at it. There was a lot of bleeding around, so they told me I'd probably miscarry. They weren't very pleasant about how they put it. Mm. You know, there'd be a lot of blood. I might need to call an ambulance. It'd be really painful. It was just described horribly and mm. then as a tail end comment I got told oh well as as a heartbeat we'll have to put it as a viable pregnancy went back the next week to be scanned the woman who'd scanned me the previous week was asked to come in for a second opinion because I am difficult to scan and I heard a shout at the door I told her last week if there's no growth then she's miscarried which is awful yeah, to hear shouted. You know, you're not the only person that said that about, about a similar situation where they just talk about you like you're not there. Um, yeah. You can clearly hear. I think yeah, that that's that's an awful situation, awful to hear. But then to be because I wasn't very happy the week before, 
about how they spoke to me. I'd spoke to somebody at the Alex, one yeah. of the consultants at the Alex, yeah. who'd got me a scan literally just about an hour and a half after we'd had this scan at the women's. Right. So I was told I miscarried, was offered to go and sit in the main scan department with people who were pregnant to see if I'd miscarried, which I obviously declined because I, I didn't. No. I don't want to go and sit with people who are pregnant when I might not be. Went to the, the Alex had a really experienced sonographer who was brilliant, scanned my abdomen, not even transvaginal, which is what I'd had done at the women's, and found him straight away. Oh, so he was still there. Yeah. Little heartbeat, beating yeah. away. And they did He's say... He's going nowhere. He's, he wasn't going anywhere. Was, you must have felt absolutely elated and relieved at that point in time. You know when you're in shock and you can't quite believe it, so you... you, do. you don't cry. You I don't, do. <laughs> You don't cry, you don't move, you don't really know what you're thinking. You're just kind of a little bit like, and it's almost like because you've had the traumatic experiences and obviously you've got extensive experience with, with this, with your job, but when it happens to you, it, it's so different, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that and must, it must have been, yeah, you kind of don't want to get too excited either because you're sort of like... You're clinging on hope all the yeah. time, aren't you? And you don't want to get too excited because you don't want that hope to go. So, yeah, I understand. And Ian had even said to me after we'd gone to the women's for the scan, do you really want to go to the Alex? Is it really worth going? And something told me, to, something said to me, yeah, you, you That'll need to go. That'll be your gut instinct. That'll be your gut instinct. Always go with your gut. I strongly believe in that. So the rest of the pregnancy from there on, finding out, yes, there's a viable pregnancy, you haven't miscarried, he's there. How was the rest of your pregnancy? Still stressful. Okay. I wanted to be as normal as possible, like any normal mother would do. Ended up under consultant because I was um, an IVF pregnancy because they grow smaller is what I found out afterwards good family history of diabetes in our family so mm. ended up under a consultant which is fine wasn't bothered about that was having see my diabetes test came back absolutely fine there was no problems it was all going swimmingly until about 32 weeks mm. when he wasn't growing as well as he should have been and right. was plotted underneath the tent sent back a couple of weeks later when he probably should have been delivered i don't think the scan was 100 percent accurate but they said he'd gain weight so they left him alone and left him till 36. Mm. nearly had him at 34 had steroids just in case got to 36 went for the appointment on the thursday yeah everything's fine everything's lovely we'll see you when you around your due date don't need any more scans off you go that was on the Thursday, and then he, he came out on the Sunday. <laughs> so he was born at what gestation? 36 weeks and six days. Um, he was healthy? He didn't cry initially, but yeah. So Other than being small, he was perfectly formed. Brilliant. Fantastic. So after a traumatic pregnancy with lots of doubts and being passed from pillar to post and lots of different consultants and being told he's not growing in many years and blah, 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 blah. You're all over the place, aren't you? You had yeah. him and he decided to come a little bit earlier. Which Did you did you have a feeling he would? 
I'd got aches and pains before because we'd gone to visit some friends in Southend and I got aches and didn't quite feel myself but couldn't put my finger on it, how, what it was, why I didn't feel a bit out of sorts. So I went, went to see my friends, had a lovely walk down Southend Pier, Saturday night went out for lunch before, went out for tea before we left them to go to the hotel up in Ipswich because we were going to go to the big mother care, mm-hmm. sort out my bag, get everything that I needed. <laughs> Sat yeah, thinking you've still got time. Yeah, loads of time, <laughs> loads of time. Got a bit of a pain and thought, mm, could be early labour, that's not a problem. It's my first baby, with my knowledge, it's going to take loads of time. In the bath for a couple of hours, tummy was going hard and soft, didn't really think anything of it, and then my waters went and there was just blood everywhere. And it was just a nightmare. So the midwife in me kicked in, not the mother in me, got my hubby up, got him to phone an ambulance, swore at the woman on the phone who kept asking stupid questions like, is the baby coming, can you see the head? <laughs> swore at Ian because it was a totally stupid question because obviously I know what's going on. Calmly packed my bag, calmly picked up everything that I need, got to the ambulance when it finally got here, got out of area, ambulance crew who didn't know where the hospital was had asked us if we oh, phoned. Then got radio to control who gave them the wrong number in ended up googling the number and gave them the number to ring the hospital to let us know to see if they would take us which obviously i knew that they would because they have to take of a pregnant course, woman of course asking stupid audit questions like is this the baby's father do you live in a house or a flat you know rubbish stupid questions while well, i'm trying to focus on can i feel him move is he okay at this point, I can't feel him move. I don't really know what's going on. And, and I'm very within myself trying to get there. Got to the hospital and they thought my waters had just gone at 36 weeks with a bit of blood staining. And when I walked in and with blood everywhere, they were absolutely horrified, mm-hmm. as you would be on mm-hmm. a Sunday morning at 2am when you're not expecting it. They then sat and watched me for about the next 17 hours to see what was going on. And it was a really long day. The consultant had come in, they kind of talked to me. We could hear them outside saying, well, she's a midwife and he's a journalist, as if our job would make any difference to the plan that was going on. Alex had been absolutely fine. And then when we first went in, we were both in shock. So they brought the scanner in to see if it was a stillbirth, which I knew it wasn't because Mm. I could just tell. And then obviously I started to shake because then I went into shock. Yeah. Because then I didn't have to cope anymore. Yeah. So once that had all settled down and uh, the day was absolutely fine, Ian popped back to the hotel, came back. It was all going fine. And then I had another gush about five o'clock, went back on the monitor and his heart rate started dipping. Mm. I'd got a poor midwife who looked after me who'd only been qualified for 18 months. So obviously I'd got more experience than her, called her back in, told her I wasn't happy. She said, oh, the doctor's just been in. I'm saying, I'm not interested. Go and get him back. He comes in and then he's very much like, you might get your wish for a section that we'd already had the discussion about because I just told them to just get in and section me because I knew that's where it was going to end up. Yeah, with your experience, of course. So do you think, did you feel kind of pleased that you knew what was going on? In a way, very much so. Because sometimes they say being oblivious, but I suppose for me, I'd want to know because you know yourself, don't you? But delivering someone else's child to it actually happening to you, how did you find that? 
it was very difficult and I very much coped with it as a midwife, yeah. not as a mother. Because those time, instincts naturally kicked in for you then. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was difficult. I just sorted him out as a as a midwife, sorted my husband out because I knew he was important. Didn't really think about how I felt about it. Mm. And I think that's where everything led on from. Yeah. Which is my next question. Um, so obviously you know a great deal about birth and the early days of parenting. Um, was it a surprise to you how you felt at the time? Did it still come as a, as a surprise? I had a lot of flashbacks for weeks and it wasn't me that picked up on it. It was because I was kept crying all the time. Ian picked up on it before mm. I did. It took me six weeks for it to dawn on me that there was something something wrong in how you felt yeah and your mental well-being yeah it took me a long time to 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 acknowledge that there was something wrong mm. but before that I was very much feeling guilty why aren't I happy why aren't I pleased I've wanted this at one point I looked to them and looked at Ian and went what have I done I just mm. want to go back to before I don't want to be like this why is it like this? Why am I crying all this? Why am I tired? Because in my mind, it hadn't sunk in that actually there is something wrong. Mm. So it was Ian that said, did he approach you and say, look, you know, Liz, maybe there's something more going on than just sort of, you know, finding, you know, new parenting difficult? He very much alerted me to it. I kept saying, no, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong. I was talking to a colleague from work about it and she was like I think there's something wrong with you and it wasn't till I was on hold crying because I was on hold trying to book his six week check mm -hmm. that I actually thought mm, there might be something wrong here again spoke to my friend about it and she went you need to go to the GP mm -hmm. and is that what you did yeah I phoned my mum to come out of work to come with me because I didn't want to go on my own my dad came over and had Alex and I went to the GP mm -hmm. And was she diagnosed with, with postnatal depression? She gave me the choice of whether I wanted to start tablets or whether I wanted to give it another week to see how I felt. Mm. But I knew myself that something was wrong and I wasn't going to cope with it on my own. So how, how, how from knowing that you knew something wasn't right from... Because I suppose a lot of new mums who haven't got your experience don't always know what's wrong with them. They might put it down to the fact that I've just had a baby, my body's been through a lot of trauma, I'm, I'm sleep deprived. You know, I suppose it's like for new mums, how do you know the difference, for, for, for obviously people listening, how do you know the difference between I'm a new mum and finding things a bit tough or I'm actually clinically depressed and I have postnatal depression? How do you think, what advice would you give to people that maybe in that similar situation to, to you? So for me, it was, I was frightened to be left on my own with him. Okay. My dad was with me till about four o'clock, till my hubby got home at about half five, six, and I was frightened to be on my own with him. Okay. I was frightened that he would wake up, because normally he was asleep. I know how to feed him, I know how to look after him, but I was frightened of him. I'd go to bed at night, Ian would have him and I was rushing to get to bed because I just didn't want the responsibility of looking after him and I would go to bed not wanting to wake up the following morning because I yeah. didn't want to wake up and feel the way I felt all day mm. my dad would come over and have him when Ian went to work so I could go back to bed 
And I would get up and walk down the stairs, look at my dad and just cry at him. Mm. I never smiled, I no. cried. And then obviously my dad would be with me. And I was okay, but I wasn't right. I wasn't chatty, I wasn't eating, I wasn't looking after myself. Typical mental health things, you don't want to wash your hair, you don't want to go in the shower, you don't want to change your clothes, you're not interested in yourself at all. Until my dad left me at four and then I was absolutely traumatised that I was left with this child on my own. Mm. Do you think? Do you feel like it was a fear that something would go wrong? Or do you think it was a fear that you couldn't look after him properly? It was just a fear of him. Yeah. And it took a long time for that fear to go. And I suppose you, you feel then guilty for feeling like that, so it's a bit of a vicious circle, I imagine. But so many women go through it, don't they? Yeah. And they so do. many women don't say anything. And this is the whole point of this podcast today, is that, you know, if you are feeling like that, go and get some help. Go to your GP. Don't feel ashamed to, that you are feeling like that, because so many women go through it. Postnatal depression is extremely common, isn't it? Yeah, it is really common. And people um, have took, even if people don't feel the way I do, even if they feel like there's something wrong, just go to your GP, because it makes no difference. There might be nothing wrong with you than going out to some social groups that might help because it could be the isolation that's making you feel the way you do but then again the other end of the scale is you might be depressed and you might need tablets or therapy or whatever to make you better and there's nothing wrong with that either so what route did you change did you take sorry did you did you go down the medication route or the therapy route what did you feel worked for you to help you with postnatal depression I went down the tablet route mm. to start off with because obviously I know now from, from knowing what I know now, yeah. I know that the, the, it's a chemical imbalance in the brain that might always be there but might only need a short term six months of antidepressants. I also joined baby yoga and a baby sensory group to make me go out of the house. Yeah. So however much I didn't want to go, and some days I really didn't want to go, I would go out. And I would take Alex out for a walk into town or a walk to the park or a walk somewhere pretty much every day so that I was That's out the good. house. So, it, and, and, and it's always that, isn't it? It's like once you're out and once you've gone there, it, you, did you find you enjoyed the, the yoga baby? Because yeah. that's something that I, I, I love yoga and things like that. So, did you find that that really helped with the depression side of things? Yeah, we and was, accepting yeah. Alex as well with the whole yoga baby um, sessions. How, how did you find that? So baby yoga was amazing. Was and it? The pe- person that taught it, um, I still know now. And oh, she was wonderful. fantastic. And she knows a lot about baby bonding and, and feeding and all sorts of things. She's really experienced, but she also really knows about depression. So she knew how I felt every week. She would always talk to me. She always checked that I was okay. Um, and for some I think that's the key, isn't it? Is talking to somebody about how you feel as yeah. well. Um, not feeling ashamed and keeping it to yourself. You know, get out there, talk to somebody, go to your GP, join a class. You're not alone no. at all. The more you talk to people, the more you accept it yourself as well. Mm. The more you accept that it's okay that you're not okay. Yeah, completely. Brilliant. So how long did you... Did it take for you to recover, or do you think you've ever really fully recovered? How old's Alex now? He's five. He's at school. He is at school. He's in year one. He's doing life. 
Brilliant. So in terms of recovery, I can honestly say for the first two and a half years, three years, I don't remember a lot Mm. at all. It's like there's a big blur. Bit of a blur. Mm. It's like I just literally went through life as a ghost because I don't remember things. Ian for this Mother's Day made me a, a CD, like a DVD, to music with pictures of Alex. And I sat oh, and cried at it because I don't wonderful. remember a lot of them. I don't remember a lot of things. I wish I could remember like him being nine months old and sitting and hugging him and falling asleep with him and him being 12 months old. And But I don't remember. And the guilt I feel for not remembering is awful. And the guilt that I feel for the thoughts when I first had depression of what have I done, I don't want him anymore. You know, somebody could have picked, come knocked the door and took him away and I wouldn't have batted an eyelid because I just wasn't in the place to deal with it. Mm. Which is unfortunate and no one wants that to happen, but it didn't happen, no one took him away. And I'm sure you're having those moments of enjoying him at school and seeing him thrive now, I hope. Yeah, oh yeah, it's definitely different now. And our relationship's better and our relationship has been a lot better since he's been about three, three and a half. Yeah. When I've been more engaging because I felt better and things are better and we work better and I'm not afraid to be with him anymore. Because it used to be that I'd be left with him and think I've got to go out with a friend or I've got to do something because I don't know what to do with him on my own. And I would panic or I'd pick him up from nursery at two, three o'clock. And until Ian got home at six, seven mm. o'clock... I didn't know what to do with him, so I was constantly worrying. And do you feel that that's, that that's gone now? Do you feel like it's more natural? Yeah, now I can't wait for him to get home because Alex is driving me mad. Because he's tired. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, no, that's like normal motherhood, yeah. Yeah, normal motherhood. So, in terms of your own sort of mental well being now, are you still on medication? How, are you, how do you manage that now? I'm still on medication. I've changed from the one that I was originally on because I had a bit of a blip last year came off the medication that I was on which wasn't the right thing but it definitely wasn't working so it was the right thing in one sense Mm. went back onto something else that I'm coping a lot better on but it's just being really open about the fact that there are mental health problems that I have got a mental health problem and and that's okay and some days if I'm quiet it is okay it is okay and some days if I'm quiet then that's okay and some days if I'm feeling a bit down and not great then that that's okay as well so I suppose it's how you've learned coping mechanisms along the way. Um, can you share any of those particular sort of coping mechanisms on parenthood when you do have your blue days? Um, and we all, as parents, experience it. I mean, parenthood is the most wonderful thing. I wouldn't change it for the world. But it's bloody hard. It is, and there is nothing anywhere that can prepare you for it. Nothing at all. It's it's, it's so many different emotions in one. It's becoming a mother. It's a massive life change. It's bringing that child up. It's making sure that they're healthy and going through all their different milestones. And your whole relationship changes as well because it's not just you or your husband or your partner or, or whatever circumstance you're in. It's this other big responsibility. And sometimes that can be overwhelming. That responsibility, as you put it, rules the world whereas you you know could pick up your handbag and go out for a meal if you wanted now you have to think have I got enough you know have I got enough to feed them are they going to be okay have I and it's still ongoing now so when we go out now have I got him a drink have I got him a snack have I got him because you constantly 
you zoned into that. Foolishly, as a midwife, I thought, yeah, sleep deprivation, I know what's coming, it'll be fine. <laughs> oh, no, gosh. how wrong can you be? How, how wrong can how you be? How wrong can you be? Yeah, sleep deprivation, I didn't know what had hit me. I mean, Pearl spent, as you know, the first two months of her life in hospitals, and we finally got her home, which was like, on New Year's Day, it was the best day ever for us. We're like, we finally got our baby home. And we ended up back down in the hospital that night because we weren't used to the noises. No. I was like, this can't be right. She sounded like, a, like we were in like a farmyard or yeah. something. And nothing prepares you, even though she'd spent two months of her life in hospital. Because neonatal wards are busy and there's lots of noise. Yeah. So I think even for her, she thought, we go back home, it's silent. Yeah. She's um, not used to that. Not at all. We weren't used to it, and she wasn't used to it. So we ended up back down the Alex just to get her checked out because we were so paranoid. And, and it's a massive life-changing thing, but I can honestly say, hand on heart, I wouldn't change it for the world. No, I wouldn't go back and Ever. change it. I absolutely adore being a mother. Um, and although my experience was also traumatic with her being poorly and yours was with postnatal depression... I wouldn't change any of it for the world because of just the love that you feel you can't ever experience, can you? No. But like we say, it's hard work and nothing prepares you for all the other things that come into it. Sometimes you love them, but you're thinking, I'm not really, I don't really like them right now and I need to walk away. <laughs> oh gosh, all the time. <laughs> uh, my thing is, I've got an obsession with making sure that she eats the right foods and I am really lucky because she does, she loves sprouts. That's just wrong. I know, but, and I'll say to people, you know, um, yeah, Pearl loves sprouts. We had a barbecue the other weekend, and she said, where's the round green things? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I thought she was on about peas or yeah. cucumber. She's like, sprouts, where are the sprouts? I am really, like, lucky in that respect, but... Um, yeah, my thing is like food and making sure that she eats really well and that she drinks really well. But it takes a, a long time to sort of, you know, you go with the flow, don't you? You think, oh, they're nice and sound asleep. And then you have those moments of, I need to go and check them. Make yeah. sure they're still breathing. <laughs> yeah, you do. I went down that route. Alex ate so well when he was being weaned. Lovely. Now, because he's got a mind of his own, he'll eat what he wants when he wants. And like you, have you had a drink? No, he'll do when he's ready. He's very stubborn, very opinionated. He does eat much better in terms of vegetables and fruit than I do. Yeah. But it's on his terms. Is it? Yeah, it's very much on his terms. And if he doesn't want it, he won't have it. Mm. And that's it. They get their own little minds and, you know, trying to... I've done the whole, tried to do the whole reverse psychology and she does it back at me. Yeah. And then I think, okay, what am I going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and no one tells you this because no. as parents, you don't get a book no. of rules and do's and don'ts. You have to figure it out as you go along. You really do. But it's, um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful journey. So going back to this kind of the coping mechanisms with people that you know, might be having the blue days, what could you advise? Back when I had postnatal depression, I didn't actually get any coping strategies, which is why I think I had a bit of a blip. 
mm. when I did because I was just coasting along. Mm. Some really, really good things is doing something like cross-stitching or knitting or something that just focuses your mind because mm. that's what you need to do. You need to focus your mind from the insecurities, the fears, the unnatural things that come. Having depression, having anxiety means that you watch your child run down down the path or down the road or somewhere and in your head you've watched them fall over smack the head open and they're bleeding whereas yeah you should normally just think oh they could do that in your head they've already done it yeah we all have those those definite fearful moments of oh my god i can see this accident happening before it's happened yeah whereas yeah. i think from walking to school with a friend that doesn't have anxiety but does understand it she shouts at him because he's gone too far away and she can't see him, whereas I'm thinking he's going to trip over in a minute, he's going to smack it. And, you know, he walks down a step. I've imagined all the worst scenarios that could happen. So I'm then having a panic that he's going to... something's going to happen to him. So it's just... For me, coping has been to remember to take big, deep breaths because you'd be surprised that you shallow breathe a lot when you panic but you don't realise that you're doing it, you have to stop and think. Audiobooks, fantastic. Mm. Totally focus your mind. I fall asleep to one every single night. Oh, brilliant. I like audiobooks. I've got my father-in-law into audiobooks, actually, to help with anxiety. Yeah, and mm. again, as I was saying, cross-stitching, knitting. I suppose it's about taking that time for yourself. Yeah, it and is. if you're having those strange, odd feelings of... You know, I just want somebody to take the child away. I don't want the responsibility. That's okay. Yeah. You know, go and speak to somebody. Surround yourself with people that will understand, that may have been through it. Go on maybe forums, you know, search on postnatal depression and sort of, you know, you, I suppose there's lots of different platforms. Do you think there's enough services out there? I don't think there's enough support out there, but I don't think there's enough support out there for mental health in general. Yes. This is what we're trying to destigmatise, and again, the NHS is up against it. I've had a, a recent case where um, somebody very close to me is suffering so badly with hallucinations and sleep deprivation and anxiety, and the doctor's just given me a list of self-referral, and even though he's in quite a critical condition, they're like, um, it, there's a six-month waiting list. Yeah. You know, so it is, it's it's tough, isn't it? I was referred to some sort of help thing and the letter for it came through six weeks later. Mm. And I remember phoning them and saying, it's too late because if I was still feeling the way I felt six weeks ago, I'd be dead by now because I would have committed suicide because mm. of how I felt. Mm. So actually, six weeks is too long. Mm. Let alone six months. Um but but going to the GP and being put on the tablets, did you find that helped? What do you think helped you instantly? Do you think you was fortunate that you'd got a good support network with your husband and your friends and your family? It wasn't it it wasn't an instant coping. No. It was I must get to the end of the day because when I get to the end of the day I'll take my tablet and by taking my tablets I'm gonna feel better. And in a week's time, two weeks' time I'm gonna feel better and that's what I focused on to start off with. If I keep taking these tablets, I am going to feel better. Good. So there was there was something there that was like a glimmer of hope. Yeah. And the side effects from them can be absolutely awful. But you still think, if I keep going, they're going to get better. 
obviously still with everything else, I'd still got the support, I'd still got, was getting enough sleep, even though it wasn't in the proper sleep that I needed to get mentally well. I'd spoke to another friend who had really severe postnatal depression to the point where she had to see a psychiatrist mm. who advised me that I could take herbal tablets to help me sleep. So that really helped as well. Oh, okay. Um, and I spoke to her a lot and she helped me a lot through de- depression by just accepting that it's okay, that it, it's it's normal for some people to feel the way that I felt. Yeah. When I was watching another friend who'd had a baby four weeks before me blooming she looked wonderful she got up she went out whereas I just didn't at all we're not all the same though are we we're not all the same so on more of a positive note what makes Liz happy these days what are the things that you do and rely on if you're feeling down is it your cross stitching or is there anything else so you my, do. my absolute favourite thing is I love going to Warwick Castle. Oh! It is my favourite place in it's the so whole special. world. Uh, you know, it's funny, there is something enchanting about that place. I completely agree. I went there last year. I wanted to go there for my birthday. Yeah. I don't want to go I'll anywhere go, else. Yeah, I try and go every year. It's. I haven't been this year, um, but I completely, yeah... And just, just you're, you're the only other person that I've ever heard say that because Warwick Castle is a very special place it's to my, me indeed, it's amazing but it's, I've got childhood memories where I went with my parents I love the War of the Roses and they've got an exhibition there, I love history I love all of that, I've been with a friend and her daughter to the dungeon and I've got funny memories of that my mum thinks peacocks are unlucky because her mum thought they were unlucky but for me, they're not because they're there at Warwick Castle with the happy memories that I have. Mm-hmm. And between, other than that, I love to go into National Trust because they're history houses and mm-hmm. I love history. Although my favourite part of it is obviously the cup of tea and the cake afterwards. Oh, gosh, yes. But I love the In room. those idyllic gardens. Yeah, love it. Yes. And if the child does sit still long enough, I'd have an idyllic day of cross-stitching with a cup of tea and a piece of cake, but it doesn't actually pan out that way. It kind of goes, we'll go around the house, I might get a bit of a look at it, and then, you know, we'll sit down and have a piece of cake before Alex runs off to do something else. I bet bet he loves Warwick Castle, though. He does. The War of the Roses, for people that don't know and haven't been to Warwick Castle, it's like like a reenactment of... Um, of, of jousting, fighting, like how it used to happen, castles and saving the Queen. It's just so nostalgic. It's everything to do with history. And the falconry. I love yeah. the falconry show because obviously I'm massively into nature. But I'm sure people have picked up during these podcast sessions. <laughs> and the love of gardens. But I love the falconry as well. Um, it's just the whole the house. I absolutely love the last house... The last room, sorry, um, the blue room, mm. and you look out of the window down to the to the flowing river. Yeah. Oh, it's just beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. But I love the, as well as the War of the Roses, there's a 1920s, like, garden, not garden party, like a party where they all go and visit them in the 1920s, and they've got the bath running. Oh, wow. And Have you been on that? Well, it's, it's, you walk around it, it's a Madame Two Swords thing. Oh, okay. But I always remember doing that 
with my parents when I was younger. So I suppose that's your happy place then, isn't it? Warwick yeah. Castle, that's your happy place of fond childhood memories. And now you're creating those memories with your son. Yeah. So he will go back there the same as what we've done. It's like a generation thing, yeah. isn't it? Is, is there anything else that sort of, any other happy places or anything else that you do that, you know, you take time for yourself that you love? I love all sorts of things, things that I didn't realise that I really liked. So I've always loved cats, and like you, I really love nature. But recently I've noticed difference, like you watch the trees, how they evolve, how they change. And the seasons. And the seasons. I love Christmas. I can't even begin to tell you how much I love Christmas. And when I was unwell, I didn't even care if the tree went up. Now you're talking to the woman who is now on the countdown of how many weeks it is till Christmas. Seriously? Yeah. Oh. And I start after Ian's birthday because Ian's birthday is 17 weeks till Christmas Day. And that's when I start. And I love Christmas, but before I had no interest. So I love Christmas. I could focus on Christmas all year round. Well, homemade, what was it? Kirsty yeah. Orsop's homemade Christmas. It's on every year. I love it. Yeah. I'm coming around yours this Christmas and we're going to do we're going to do something to do with craft or upcycling because obviously I love vintage as well um so yeah I think we should put that in as a date definitely um going back to your career what have been the highlights has anything stood out there are so 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 many I've had things where I've had recommendations from students about how well I look after them I've got things stuck on my fridge because we're supposed to have reflections from like service users, so women that have used the service. There's one on my fridge saying what a wonderful midwife I am, how much I've looked after them. Somewhere in this world, the one of the last babies I delivered has got um, Elizabeth as their middle name, spelt with an S, which is after me. Oh, that's but, wonderful. And the person, my friend's daughter, who I went to her delivery, she's nine this year. It's just things like that. It's watching your students develop and now they're qualified and you're working with them instead of looking after mm. you. There's so many things. There isn't one thing that I would say, you know, this has been the highlight of my career. It's everything. It is everything about the career. Um, in terms of your career, um, obviously you've done 13 years of midwifery. You're now... Your main goal and dream is to teach midwifery. Do you want to elaborate on where you are at the moment with that? So I've been seconded for 12 months from my trust, which means they've it's like a placement, so I've been taken from the ward that I work on to go and work at the university, um, which means I'm going to do some teaching. I've got to organise skills days, which means, you know, things for the first year. So simple things like making beds, how to do temperatures, how to do blood pressures... I'm so passionate about passing on my passion of midwifery to others, to try and inspire others the way that I feel, the same way that the two midwifery lectures I had inspired me and made me feel. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to somebody today about it and saying that I want to make them feel how I felt. Yes. To inspire them, to make them achieve, to make them realise that there's nowhere that they can't achieve if they want to if they want to be a midwife and stay a midwife forever that's fine if they want to do management that's fine if they want to do research or teach or
community or whatever, that's fine. But just to make them appreciate that being a midwife is a wonderful thing. And it so is, and it's an important thing. We need more of you. You're fantastic. Um, so what's your end goal? What, what, where would you like to sort of see yourself in sort of the next five to ten years in terms of teaching midwifery? Is there anything more specific? My goal when I was younger was to be Margaret Thatcher and conquer the world. <laughs> I love it. Until she took milk out of school, which I really loved. Oh, and then it changed. Yeah. yeah. So until that point... Thatcher's Britain. Yeah, there was a lot of love there for the Thatcher. But I want to do my best in midwifery teaching. So now I want to conquer that world. I want to make it better for the students. And by making it better for the students, I can make it better for the women and improve it and improve the way they feel and improve how they're supported by, yeah. by the knock-on effect, by making not better midwives, better in some sense, but better because... They feel like they can do better. They feel like they can achieve. Not because... Not keeping the ones who aren't very good. Not that making them aspire. Making them feel like they can do better. There's nothing they can't do. There's nothing they can't care for. And by giving them that confidence, they will then make it better for the women, which in turn will give them better experiences, which will hopefully, you know, because of the better relationships, maybe might identify postnatal depression earlier mm. because there is, there's more of us to pick up on it. Definitely. And just, you know, implementing those support um, networks and if somebody does recognise that a lady, you know, a new mother's struggling, all those kind of things as well. So that, that that's wonderful and I'm sure that you'll achieve it. I've got every faith in you. Um, any top tips on parenting? Appreciate you're going to make mistakes. Yep. You're only human. Yep. Unfortunate children don't come with a handbook. They don't. Talk to other people because other people might have experienced the same as you. You will be amazed. You'll think you're the worst parent in the world because your child won't read, which you currently won't. And there's somebody else's child who won't read because they hate doing it. Completely. But, but look at your child as a whole. So, okay, my child doesn't really like reading and won't read, but actually his social skills are really good. But the other child who reads absolutely fantastic is not as outgoing and brave as my child. Which we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so just accept yeah. your child as a whole. As long as they're happy Yeah. and they're healthy, those are the main things. And not beat yourself up, because I do that. I think, oh, you know, if I haven't read you know, the, the, the phonics book that night, I think, oh, no, I'm a bad mom. Yeah. And, and we do it, don't we? We're yeah. all so typically British. We beat ourselves up. We don't like to sort of, you know, admit you know, if we're struggling a little bit. And I think by talking to the parents, you're so right, Liz. Um, you know, there's so many people out there when you actually do start talking, oh yeah, tell me about it. I, try, I tried that the other night and it didn't work and you feel guilty if they haven't eaten all of their tea. And there's so many different things. And I think one of the main things for me as a mother is not to keep beating yourself up. Yeah, and my child lives on nuggets and chips or sausage and chips with the occasional bit of beans through thrown in but he will eat cucumber so do you know what that's fine if that's what he'll eat that's what he'll eat if he then develops his um taste buds as he gets older and starts having more vegetables although he actually eats quite well when he picks at them that's fine mm. it's normal we all go through it we've all done that do. stage where we're picking we won't eat things and then as we get a bit older but because we're parents we think oh god that's terrible my child won't eat that but so and so's child will eat 
a full roast and dinner. And it's that whole comparison, isn't it? Yeah. I, I've, I do, I think, oh, you know, Pearl's a brilliant eater, I'm really lucky. But, you know, she struggles with phonics. Yeah. I've accepted it. You know, reception, a year one, uh, you know, I'd go home from school, picking her up. I'd be on the phone to my husband, oh, you know, I'd be crying, I'd be beating myself up, I'm not doing this as a mother, you know. And yeah. now I've come to a point where I've just accepted it and we've put a couple of things in place. I'm doing my best and so is she. Yeah. And you have to appreciate that they're not all going to be great at everything because we're all human. Yeah, but just accept them for what they are. Exactly. And as long as they're happy, That's they're amazing. contented... They might not be eating everything that they should be eating, but they're still growing, they're still gaining weight, they're still hitting their milestones. So what? And every child's different. Yeah, they are. We're not all the same. So don't compare yourself. No, you still do it, but what I would say is talk to the moms around you. Mm, Because the child the same age, or they may have older children, and actually they may experience something from you and actually get advice from you. So something you've gone through... They're just going through and you can help them. Yeah, totally. Totally agree with it. It's been wonderful having you on. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to it or talk about? I think I would just like people to accept that it's all right to not be okay. It's all right to feel bad about not being happy when you've got this newborn baby. You know, you've waited for it. You should be elated. You should be. You look at everybody else. You feel guilty. I just want people to accept that that's that's normal for them it and is. they just need help and to just go and help go in and seek help and go and seek support go to support groups talk to your friends get involved with other people because that's what's going to keep you sane and that's what's going to keep you going until you can get out of the hole that you're in and you do get out of the hole don't you eventually. you do get out of the hole nothing ever stays the same forever no, so it's it important to talk definitely definitely um is there anything else no is it? So, same question that I like to end the show with. Is there a particular um, saying or affirmation that inspires you that you'd like to share? So, my favourite one is one that was told to me by a friend when I was really poorly. And that is, tomorrow will be better. Because when you're feeling down and you can't see a way out of it, you've just got to accept that tomorrow you'll feel a bit better. And then tomorrow you'll feel a bit better. And tomorrow you'll feel better. Until eventually you won't feel as bad as you, you felt to start off with. But when you first in that, you know, write the day off, okay, you feel bad today. But you'll feel better tomorrow, so forget about today. Even if it's the middle of the day, first thing in the morning, whatever. Just accept that day's going to be bad, but tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow's another day. Yeah, and that's what got me through, tomorrow will be better. Definitely. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your, you know, your personal experiences of unfortunate incidences that have happened to you in your career, but has also, you know, enabled you to be on the path that you are now, where you're sort of passing on your extensive wisdom and experience of being a midwife for 13 years to, to new students, um, showing them the realness of it um, and, and the beauty of it. I think what you do is amazing. I think it takes a special person. Um, and also with, you know, your traumatic pregnancy, um, the birth of, of Alex, I think the fact you called your son after the Alexandra Hospital is, is, is just so beautiful. Um, 
and obviously sharing with us your story of postnatal depression. I'm sure there's a lot of women out there that are suffering or have suffered, will, that I hope will you know, be able to resonate with what you've said today. Um, so thanks for coming on. You're very welcome.